0: I'm Austin, and this is Validated. Today I'm talking with Sami Kassab, a research analyst at Masari who covers DPIN, Decentralized Physical Infrastructure Networks. As the name suggests, DPIN projects use token economics to incentivize the supply side of infrastructure, such as wireless hotspots, weather sensors, and dash cams, to solve existing real world demand. This definition is not as heady as it sounds. In more concrete terms, a project like Helium allows anyone to contribute to a decentralized wireless network by running a hotspot out of their home. At scale, this creates a viable alternative to more centralized competitors like Verizon or Spectrum, where people running the infrastructure are rewarded with tokens. DUI networks, short for decentralized wireless, are one of the best-known use cases of Deepin, and we spend a good deal of time on how they operate. Today, there are a lot of d networks under construction, and they're one of the most innovative use cases for blockchain technology. But d is not without its challenges. We discuss issues of privacy, coordinating network coverage in the absence of centralization, and more. Let's get into it. Sammy, welcome to Validated. Hey, thank you for having me. I'm excited for this conversation today. So I kind of want to set the scene here before we get into it. If we go back to the early days of crypto, we had Bitcoin and only Bitcoin. With Bitcoin, there's one token, it's secured on a decentralized ledger, and the thing you really can do with it is trade Bitcoin. Bitcoin is money, Bitcoin is a store of value, and that's it. Fast forward a few years, we have the founding of Ethereum, which is the first smart contract platform of any real size or notability that's built on blockchain. And most of the things we've seen since then are downstream of that fundamental concept pioneered by Ethereum. You can run a giant decentralized computer all over the world with thousands of different people's hardware, and that can run applications built on the network. That's the idea of a smart contract. But today, we're here to talk about something a little bit different. We're talking about physical infrastructure networks that are built on blockchain technology, networks that serve functions in the real world beyond just executing computer code.
1: Yeah, so this is a really interesting and emerging sector that I've been paying a lot of attention to in crypto. So like you were saying, I mean, we've seen the power of crypto economic protocols when it comes to the digital realm, right? So we've seen how they're extremely powerful at like incentivizing and coordinating behavior when it comes to DeFi, DAOs, um, but now we have people thinking, okay, like, what if we could apply those same economic models to incentivize people to go out into the real world and deploy, you know, physical infrastructure? And so that's what this, like, emerging new sector called, what we're calling at Masari, D-PIN, uh Decentralized Physical Infrastructure Network, stands for. And so there's a bunch of different terms out there as well. You have, like, TIPIN. You have POPW. But really all they're referring to is just like using crypto economic protocols to build real world infrastructure.
0: Let's hold there for a second. When people think about physical infrastructure, they think about things like bridges, roads and natural gas pipelines. But what we're talking about in the context of Deepin, though, is not that kind of infrastructure. So break down the kind of infrastructure that Deepin is referring to.
1: Yeah, so I actually broke down this sector. In a report I released last Thursday into like four broad categories and I think that kind of covers the space well so that your first category you have is like server networks right that can be like similar to the cloud networks and it's basically just like a series of computers and servers are interconnected together then you go into like DY which is wireless networks that's another pillar here and Decentralized wireless networks can be broken down. into like 5G networks, IoT networks, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and so on. Then you also have like sensor networks. And when we think of like a sensor network, basically just think of like a network of hardware devices that have these embedded sensors in them. And they're collecting data from the real world. So this could be like traffic data, temperature data. It could be imagery data, like HiveMapper collects street-level imagery and then the last pillar you have is like energy networks, right? And so these are like decentralized energy infrastructure, which is really just like pulling together these energy resources. So it could be like solar panels, batteries. And so infrastructure is a very broad term, like I said, but it, it's basically just referring to like physical work in the real world.
0: Yeah. So there's a few things I want to unpack here that sort of contrast deep in networks with smart contract networks. For smart contract networks, Physicality and location are important in the abstract sense, but not necessarily mission-critical in the practical sense. What I mean is, like, on a decentralized network like Solana or Ethereum, I can execute code on any computer anywhere in the world. Obviously, the more geographically disparate those computers are, the better it accomplishes the goal of true global decentralization, but in theory, they can operate from anywhere. But in the case of deep end, the physical nature of the hardware, like the literal physical location of the hardware, is much more significant because the hardware is doing a job in the real physical world. The utility of a sensor network that collects, say, traffic or weather data is inherently tied to its place of deployment. Maybe this is a complicated way of saying the obvious, but deep end networks are solving interface problems in the real world as opposed to something like Bitcoin, which although it requires a lot of physical energy and physical infrastructure, is just producing and maintaining a ledger. It doesn't matter where a specific miner is as long as the network and aggregate is decentralized. With Deepin, the physical location is a key part of the network's value. Is that where you draw the line between what is and what isn't Deepin? Bitcoin's value is subjective, right?
1: Some people may think Bitcoin doesn't have value, but when you think about some of these like physical infrastructure networks, like they provide like a real use case, right? And so it's really tapping into like this non-speculative demand that already exists. And so it's a good point. Like you could consider like Bitcoin a physical infrastructure network, right? Because you have a series of like nodes that are just distributed all over the world. But kind of where I draw the line, I guess, is just thinking of like, is this something someone else would find useful? And like, is this kind of disrupting like an existing traditional industry? That's kind of how I think about Deepin.
0: Yeah, I want to kind of talk about DUI specifically uh, and how it applies to, you know, I think one of the most common use cases that folks might know about are there's a few different networks now that are all trying to run 5G or LTE or some sort of radio-based wireless long-range communications device, whether that's LoRa or 5G or LTE, right? They're all semi-interchangeable in terms of, you know, what you can do with the technologies. These are not things that we've historically thought of as distributed. I think for a long time, the assumption has been very much the same way the assumption was there's no way that decentralized finance could ever disrupt the financial industry. There's no possible way that you could compete with Verizon or T-Mobile or something like that in the United States. So what changed both in people's thinking and from a technology perspective to make something like that something that companies would go after and build a blockchain protocol around?
1: That's a really good question. I guess just to like set the stage real quick. So like DY is aiming to revolutionize the way that communication networks are built, right? So historically, we had to rely on these um, single centralized entities to be able to do so because it was just like so capital intensive, right? And then Helium came on the scene. And so Helium brought forward the concept of, okay, what if we like, leverage token rewards to have everyone on the network be like their own micro network operator, right? And what if we can build a network that way where we can like bootstrap it with very little capital, incentivize people to deploy um, the hardware themselves, which is sort of like crowdsourcing it, And what if we can do it in like a distributed fashion like that? And so Helium was really the first to pioneer this with their LoRaWAN IoT network and they proved this concept out, right? So like that network right now is close to like over a million hotspots. And next they're like, okay, we did this with an IoT network. Why can't we just do this with like a 5G network? And like you said, this is pretty much like the DY honeypot. Like everybody's focused now on 5G because one, like every network operator, every carrier is in the process right now of upgrading their network to this like fifth generation of wireless. And so one, the market opportunity is a lot larger. It's like supposed to be 88 times larger than IOT. And yet, like I said, you know, everybody, all these traditional network operators are focused on it. So it was really like, there's a few things that enabled this. One, obviously it's like the blockchain technology, which it enables like mass coordination in a decentralized manner. But also you have like the progression and development of just like hardware technology in general, right? So like now, like previously it was only these these like big telcos that had to go to like these hardware manufacturers and they had to like produce this like proprietary hardware. But now like you can get telecom hardware like off the shelf, right?
0: Yeah, and this is one of the biggest changes that kind of snuck up on the industry. This switch from entirely vertically integrated radio access networks to ORAN, which stands for Open Radio Access Networks, and the utilization of the CBRS spectrum band. That was like the core unlock that enabled all this, right? Because previously,
1: like, these telcos had to acquire these, like, spectrum licenses to be able to transmit data. And, you know, the CBRS was this first, like, mid-band unlicensed spectrum that anybody could access, right? And I'm happy to kind of dig in a little deeper and like what these spectrum licenses are versus like unlicensed spectrum. But like that was the key unlock right there, right? Because like now, you have these like open this open spectrum that any dy network can operate. And that's what these 5g networks operate on right now.
0: Yeah, I I think it's good to give some context that in the US, airwaves are actually property of the people. They're owned by everyone and they're administered by the federal government the same way that public land is administered by the federal government. Um, but there's these these big auctions where companies will spend billions of dollars to acquire whole chunks of the spectrum because at, at the end of the day, that spectrum has to be used for something useful uh, in the public interest. And so for Many years that was analog television broadcasting, and and as that's changed, we switched over to a world where cell phone carriers occupy most of that open spectrum nowadays. But CBRS is a pretty narrow band, if I if I remember correctly. So what about like that band specifically has opened up the world of of decentralized five G? Yeah, just touching on that
1: point that you said too, like you could think of spectrum
0: as like a
1: scarce resource, right? Because there's only like a finite amount of like spectrum available, and there's just like a constant increase in demand for it as well. So that's why like we have the FCC right now, which like you said, they're the ones who facilitate these auctions. But What's kind of mind-blowing is that since the creation of the FCC and th- these whole auctions, like over $250 billion has been added to the U.S. Treasury. So it's it's an insane amount. But going back to like the CBRS spectrum, uh, so it stands for the Citizens Band Radio Spectrum. It's a mid-band 5G spectrum. It was opened up in like 2020. But it's complex, right? So like how it is right now is it's broken up into three priority tiers, so the first one is the incumbent tier. And so this is who was like historically using this spectrum, which was like the DOD, the Navy for their radars. So they have like first dibs. They have like top priority. And then you have like the priority access license tier. And this was the tier that the FCC was like, "Okay, we're going to, you know, auction off like a large portion of this tier here." Um, and so you had entities like Verizon and Dish purchase this. And then at the very bottom of this tier is the general authorized access tier. And so this is the unlicensed portion of the spectrum. I can't remember what portion of the total spectrum this represents, but it's like, you know, a third of it, or maybe even less, but this is where DY operates. And yeah, it comes with, it comes with some risks, right? Because like the entities who are transmitting data in the above tiers always are the ones with priority, right? So like technically, like a dy network could get shut off if like, you know, a Navy ship is passing through a harbor, because they get priority,
0: right? Yeah, this happens to people's Wi Fi routers all the time.
1: Yeah, right. And so like, it's it's interesting to think that like, right now, we're at the stage in these dy networks where they're all operating on this unlicensed spectrum. But like, I bet you soon somebody's get, like, some protocol is going to try to buy some spectrum, right? Like CBRS right now has only been unlocked in the US, right? So like, there are some dy protocols or projects, like in Canada, for example, that are doing the same dy model, except like they're operating on a licensed spectrum. So, like if you have a DAO that just like decides to purchase like some portion of a spectrum, you could essentially operate on like a licensed spectrum, which is kind of a cool idea. So instead of buying the constitution, you know, <laughs> let's let's buy let's buy a portion of a spectrum.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's that's such a fascinating idea, and I, I kind of love that idea too about like. This stuff is all ostensibly in the public good, anyway. I mean, we could go on a big divergence about how Dish has been spectrum hoarding for years and never done anything with the spectrum that they've they've purchased, but that's that's probably a different podcast. So we're we're still talking about you know substantial capital outlay. You mentioned something like helium, where there there you know hundreds of thousands of hotspots all around the world. I I was one of those people who bought one on a whim uh, in like 2019, I think. But it was like $450. It wasn't it wasn't a small purchase. There was no sort of incentive initially for me to get that besides this magical internet money that wasn't listed on any exchange didn't exist anywhere. So walk us through a little bit of the economics of how decentralized physical infrastructure actually works and the incentives for people to participate in it it's different than just buying a token and doing something with that token.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's good to kind of lay the foundation for, okay, like how does the traditional telco model work before we dive into that? So I'll just quickly go through that. So what they need to do is they need to raise like tens of billions of dollars in debt to finance like the CapEx and the OpEx, which not to mention like this becomes increasingly harder in an environment where interest rates are increasing at a pretty rapid rate. Then they have to buy the spectrum licenses, which again is very capital intensive. Then what they have to do is they have to contract these hardware manufacturers like Nokia, Cisco, to build out this proprietary hardware. And then you need to find real estate to basically deploy that infrastructure on, right? So what they typically do is they'll go through these like crown castles and these American towers, uh, they'll lease that land, which is an additional cost. And then on top of that, you need to mobilize like thousands of specialized technicians to go out there, deploy, and then constantly like maintain that infrastructure, right? So the DY model just flips this entirely on its head, right? It's like, okay, we're just going to take a bottoms up approach rather than like a top down approach. So how it kind of works is that it'll start off with like a protocol team. They'll partner with like a third party hardware manufacturer to produce um, small cells, right? And so these small cells are like off-the-shelf hardware and They'll produce like the small cells as well as the gateways eventually like protocols will put standards in place that open up this like hardware production process to like anybody who wants to contribute In order to like increase decentralization as well, but usually when they're beginning They'll keep that control just to control the quality a little bit more. So then the question is, okay, so we have this hardware, how do we incentivize people to actually like go out and buy it and like start deploying these networks? And the the main, uh, like when I think of crypto and I think of like what the signal is, like what it truly unlocks, it's like the ability to bootstrap these networks like that are low in capital, right? So the idea is like, I'll tell someone, hey, if you go out, if you buy this hardware and if you deploy it, you will be able to earn these token rewards, right? And so in a way, these token rewards act as like a subsidy where it allows the hardware operators to generate like a return on their investment before the network like substantially starts generating revenue, right? So like during this bootstrapping phase, it's really the token rewards that are sustaining these miners. But what's interesting in how the, uh how the flywheel works is that like as the wireless network supply side grows, you start to have more operators, more product builders, more devs become attracted. And the key value proposition here for DY is like the improved unit economics, which allow the network to offer like cheaper data transfer rates. So if you look at like the DY 5G network transfer rates, DY has like 50 cents per gigabyte. I believe that's what it is on like Helium and Paul and Mobile versus like TradWi, which is like three to $5 per gigabyte. And what's included in there is like the spectrum license, the, all the like the capex and opex, you know, the technician salary. And so like, you know, DY because they're they're crowdsourcing that infrastructure costs, you know, a lot of operators don't have a real estate cost because they're deploying the hardware on their roof or a property they already own. Like you're, they're able to achieve a more cost effective way of bootstrapping these networks, right? So then what plays out is like, as the network's coverage grows, as more supply side participants are attracted, you'll have end users actually come to want to transmit data. We can kind of talk about like the different, like who is going to be attracted to this network.
0: Yeah, I want to also talk a little bit about the growth of these networks and how different they are from traditional crypto networks and You can tell me if you agree with this or not. But one of the interesting things is Ethereum is still useful if there's only 200 validators. Solana is still useful if there's only 200 validators. Now, maybe the networks don't live up to their goal if you're talking about Ethereum or Solana or Bitcoin if there aren't a huge validator set. But at the end of the day, you can still run smart contracts on them. I alluded to this a bit earlier. These networks are different because especially with something like helium or pollen, you're talking about its actual coverage footprint, right? If you only have a hundred of these things up and running, it's, you know, no one's going to bother using that network because it's not considered to be robust enough to actually have the coverage map that's necessary for even a use by, you know, a city bike or something along those lines. So how does the growth of these networks Intersect with sort of the ability you're saying to get rewards earlier, because those two things seem like they may be flipping the economics, where when the network is actually its least valuable, miners can make the most money off of the thing.
1: Exactly. So they're, they're, these networks are trying to attract like those risk takers, right, who are willing to invest the initial capital, and in exchange they'll be rewarded the most tokens because of that, right? Because they're going out on the limb, and The whole idea is that like, yeah, the earlier you are to these networks, the more you're going to be earning because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to bootstrap the networks. They're trying to attract supply side participants. But then later down the line, like once these networks grow, then you have the aspect of these operators start earning revenue based on like in D case, how much data is actually transmitting through their, their radios. Right. So. I agree with what you're saying. Like, it's it's difficult, right? And that's why it's almost like an all or nothing type of bet. Because if, if it doesn't grow large enough, then, yeah, you kind of run into the problem where it's not, it, the network's kind of useless. And it kind of begs the question, too, is like, when you have, like, multiple competitors in this sector, it almost makes sense. Like, hey, can you guys just, like, all work together to build one big <laughs> network? Like, come on. But yeah. obviously, like, life doesn't work like that. But yeah, that's kind of like the whole incentive mechanism right there.
0: Yeah, it is interesting, too, because if you think about like, you know, when I was originally doing research into helium back in the day, I was like looking at like US Cellular, which is like a tiny little cell carrier that mostly only services the upper Midwest, um, and you look at something like that and it's you know two and a half, I think it's like two and a half billion dollar market cap. and it basically services like a very limited number of states. But part of the way they're able to be financially viable is roaming agreements, which I believe are something the FCC has actually mandated at this point that there's some sort of roaming between carriers is at least a possibility and open. But when you're looking at something like decentralized wireless, you run into a very interesting problem where there's no planning. Right, but by, by its very nature, that the network map is not planned, so uh, you can't sort of have this idea of like, oh, we're going to make sure we have really good coverage in, let's say, like the entire highway route in Texas, right? Because you could say like, oh, that there's a valuable use case there. Um, you may end up with really great coverage, and then the whole chunk where there's nothing, and then you've got like one guy out in Wyoming who's like, I'm putting up twenty of these. When you get to that point like how have these protocols navigated some of those challenges and uh, you know have folks done things like location specific incentives at this point? and how much sort of central planning is involved in actually making something like this work?
1: Yeah no that's a great question and each dy5g network is kind of taking a different approach. obviously like if you start putting restrictions in place, you kind of lose like some of that permissionless, decentralized aspect of the network. But for example, like Xnet, they're like a, a recent DY5G network that came on the scene. They're basically trying to like first launch in like specific areas, right? So like they're only offering rewards in specific like cities, for example, where like helium and pollen is more like you can deploy anywhere. But also like what these operators are thinking about, cause it's not cheap to buy some of this hardware, right? It can, it can be like a thousand to $2,000. They don't want to just deploy it somewhere where there's no data actually going to be flowing through that. So they're they're thinking of like, okay, what are the most like densely populated areas um, where there's a lot of walking traffic? And so like that, that's what also goes into figuring out where to locate your hotspot for that exact reason. Because like you said, there's no central planning, but it just comes down to like, it's like the economic incentive. It's like capitalism, right? Like if there's if there's like an area of opportunity where like people will actually use this network, theoretically, you should see like operators move into that area to deploy in, in order to like monetize on it as well.
0: Yeah. It, it, so one of the things I think is so interesting about this is this is hardly a new idea. Like I had friends who were involved in this thing called like New York City Mesh Network which was this whole operation where people would basically set up a bunch of point-to-point microwave links, and they were trying to cover New York City and in free Wi-Fi for everyone. And it's an awesome project. It never really got to the space where it's, it's a great option for folks who... Or maybe homeless, or they just really could not afford internet and didn't live near a library or something like that. It was a great kind of public access, but it was never set up in a way that it could rival a Verizon or a Spectrum or or one of those centralized providers. Is it really just the, the capitalist token incentive that have made these things viable at this point to have a million people deploying hotspots for Helium?
1: That's actually exactly what it is. I mean, because humans are driven by incentives at the end of the day, right? So like if someone's thinking about, okay, like what do I receive in return for like, like you were saying in that in your example, like, you know, someone might be thinking, okay, like what do I receive in return? Oh, it's nothing. Okay. You know, maybe I'll do it because like I'm interested in this as a hobby for a little bit, but you're not going to like, you're not going to do that for a long period of time. Yeah. Right. So like, it really just does come down to like the monetary upside that exists with these networks and i mean and that's that's like a large factor of why a lot of people are interested in crypto but at the same time like you have a lot of people who are just like interested in the tech as well when it comes to like building these dy networks and just tip in and deepen in, in general right like you know for hive mapper you have people who are just really interested in like mapping and like tinkering with dash cams that's why i was thinking like that's the real unlock here is just like attaching like the monetary aspect to like bootstrapping these networks, because like for someone to go out and like deploy this network, they're earning rewards. They're technically becoming a partial owner of this network. Like they're receiving an ownership stake. That means like they're incentivized to like make it succeed. So like what you were seeing on on, like in Helium is that like the people who went out and deployed some of these IoT hotspots then went out and tried to get like demand side usage, right? They were going to like these farmers and being like, hey, like look at this network, it's much cheaper. Go use that, right? So it's almost like, yeah, I love it, right? Yeah, the incentive alignment is like the true unlock here.
0: So let's shift gears a bit here. One of the things that some folks have brought up with any form of physical infrastructure on a blockchain is the privacy concerns associated with it. You know, if you figure out what my wallet address is, you can learn all sorts of financial information about me, about how much Solana I might have, what NFTs I have. But if you find out my hotspot address, suddenly you probably know where I live, or at least you know where I work, or at least you know where I frequent. And that seems to be one whole piece that across all these networks, no one's really talking much about. At the same time, these things... The location has to be known or else they lose a lot of their incentive and structure behind them. How is that being addressed by folks in the field or the thinking around that evolving?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great point that you bring up. A lot of these like radios and hotspots and hardware devices, they're attached to like an NFT. And that NFT has like the rights associated to like earning income with it. And so like if you do go to like someone's wallet and you do find their NFT... You could technically go to the Block Explorer, type in that NFT, and you could see the location of that radio. But so... This doesn't really make it that much better, but like, so it doesn't show you the exact location, right? It's like, it shows you the general vicinity. It shows you the hex of where it's located, right? It's kind of similar to where you, like when you go to Airbnb, like they won't show you the exact location of the house. It'll show you like the neighborhood of where it's located in until like you book, just for like privacy and security reasons. But it's still a big problem because you've already doxxed yourself. Like if somebody knows the general neighborhood that you live in, like it's not... That much better than knowing the exact house
0: yeah it's not a big deal for me in new york where one square is probably twenty thousand people but you know for for folks who live in the suburbs or in a more rural situation you could find their location more easily with that it feels like
1: yeah yeah and so i was kind of thinking about this with like a friend of mine who's also working in the, in the dy space and so he's building out this tool called soul splits And it's basically, it's more focused towards like enterprise deployers. And it helps with like, you know, breaking up like income. So like if I was hosting your radio, like I could easily through a smart contract, like in a decentralized and trustless way, I could automatically split 50% of the revenue to go to you and 50% to go to me. If you think about it though, like that kind of adds like a privacy layer to it. Because if your NFT is going to be hosted in like a smart contract, and then that smart contract is the one paying out to your wallet, it adds a little bit of a a privacy layer to where you might not be able to, yeah, to like completely trace back. Because in the smart contract, it could be numerous different like radios, right? So I think that's something interesting that like people are starting to kind of pay attention to, and they're thinking of like, okay, what are some ways we can like abstract this away? But like you said, I mean, it still hasn't been solved for like the money aspect of crypto. Like, if you gave me your wallet right now, I'd be like, damn, okay, Austin's got five Bitcoin. Like this guy's set. But I mean, people are working on it, and I'm, I'm maybe
0: in the bear market, not as much.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's something. It's definitely something to pay attention to because it, it is a problem. But the thing with like these. The thing with 5G networks as well, like DY 5G networks is like, it's less made for like retail participants, like the IoT network was, and more towards like enterprise deployers. And so like a tool like SoulSpliss would kind of help with this privacy thing. But I mean, that's definitely something that we just got to continue iterating on and try to figure out a solution for.
0: So we've been talking a lot about why you'd want to participate in a DY network from a hosting standpoint. From a consumer side or the enterprise side, the users of these products, what's the incentive there? What's the reason that a business or a user would choose to go in the direction of decentralization instead of going with a more centralized traditional company? Yeah, this
1: is an excellent question. And I just want to kind of give the 5G network landscape before I kind of like say, okay, like what is the advantage of each of these networks? Like, What market opportunity are they going after? So we have Helium Mobile. That one's obviously known. Um, Pollen Mobile. Pollen Mobile's creation was really interesting. So it began as like an in-house connectivity solution for a autonomous like mining truck company. And so the problem they ran into is like these, these mining trucks were in these very remote locations, right? Where there's no cellular connectivity. So that company went out and they built their own cellular private network using CBRS. And so that's what led to the formation of Pollen. And so we'll come back to that. But then you have XNet. And Xnet is positioning themselves more as like a carrier grade network. And so like, what do I mean by that? Is that Helium and Polym mobile are data only. So they're no voice and they're no SMS. Xnet is allowing you, they want to be more interoperable with like the legacy network operators. And so they, they're using like a different, a different mobile core, which allows for SMS and voice. But so why I led with that is because this kind of impacts like how each network is trying to position themselves in the market. And there's really like three ways they can do so. So there's like the crypto carrier route and this is where you've seen Helium go down. So Helium is trying to be like a virtual network operator where they're going to use like the Helium infrastructure, but they also want to like directly acquire and serve customers. And so they came up with their own mobile carrier. We're calling it a crypto carrier. They're calling it a crypto carrier. So they've partnered with T-Mobile on this. So the whole idea is that like, you'll have like a cheaper plan with Helium. You'll use the Helium network where available, but when it's not available, you switch to T-Mobile's network. So, you know, that's one value proposition right there that a user would go to is like, if they just want a cheaper, cheaper sell plan. Then you have Pollen Paulin, and Pollen really going after like that private cellular network opportunity. And like these have been getting, they, these have been growing pretty popular just because like they have increased security, increased privacy and performance. And so like enterprises are really being attracted to this. And then the last way to position is like as a neutral host. And this is where I see as like the biggest opportunity. So the neutral host model allows like any mobile network operator to like leverage that infrastructure. Right. And so what this means is you can do like carrier offloading and carrier roaming. So like what Xnet is wanting to do is like, they want to deploy their radios in areas where telcos don't have coverage so that like the telcos will partner with Xnet and be like, okay, so in areas where we don't have like, you know, 5g coverage, then the users will automatically switch over to your network and um, leverage it that way, right? And then the offloading side is that like if, you, they're in, like, if you're in like a densely populated area, you obviously wanna try to reduce the load as much as you can on your own network. So the idea is like you'll offload a percent of like data on DUI infrastructure as well. So that, that's kind of like the different value proposition. Just to summarize, like you got the crypto carrier route, which is like cheaper you got the private network route, like increased security and privacy, and then the neutral host route, which is really benefiting the like legacy network operators.
0: Right. So we've spent a lot of time talking about the wireless network component of this and a little bit on the storage network. Uh, what are some of the other types of token incentivized physical infrastructure that maybe are still things that are in testnet or putting out white papers? How far are people pushing and extending this idea at this point?
1: So I'm seeing a lot of interesting projects kind of appear in like the sensor network category. Um, I briefly touched on like hive mapper, but hive mapper, what they're trying to do is create like a decentralized Google map where individuals would install this, you know, fairly cheap dash cam and that dash cam is just, you know, taking image street level imagery. And what's really interesting here is that like these dash cams are like performance wise and like quality wise of images are like competing with like Google's million dollar street view cars, right? You also have like, weather XM. These are like, basically miniature weather stations that you can set up anywhere around the world. And essentially, what it's doing is creating like
0: this decentralized weather market in a way. I think we forget how like, NOAA is pretty rare in the in the world. Most countries don't have a federally run government agency with satellites that publishes free weather reports.
1: Exactly, right. And like, you can install these devices in really like hard to reach areas as well, right? So like, that's another advantage of this whole like distributed model. And then on the other side, like, I briefly mentioned this earlier, but you have like energy networks that are starting to appear. I'm sure everyone's heard about like the energy transition, right? And so that's like, we're going from, we're taking our energy grid from being based on like fossil fuel to more renewable energy. But what like the majority of people don't understand about this is that like, you know, fossil fuel is a great base load power source where like renewable energy is more of like an intermittent power source. So like with wind and solar, for example, like you don't get to decide when those are generating electricity or energy. So as we're transitioning to this more renewable energy grid, you start to need mechanics where you can like balance the grid supply and demand like more efficiently. And so what's interesting about these decentralized networks is they're creating sort of like a virtual power plant where you can have like these batteries and these controllable load sources that work together to balance like an energy grid. So for example, if like the energy grid has too much energy that's not being utilized, which can actually be harmful to the grid. You can, you know, signal to the network to have, like, these pool of resources, you know, all start charging their batteries. And same thing goes when, like, the grid doesn't have enough energy. You can take the energy from your battery and, like, contribute that to the grid. So, like, the virtual power plant aspect is really interesting. And, like, this is something that even, like, traditional entities are getting into. Like, I just saw this report that, like, Ford, GM, and Google are trying to build like a virtual power plant. Because if you think about it, like every um, electric car could technically be like a virtual power plant where, and I know like Tesla was kind of thinking of going down this road where like their battery could be charged at certain times, but also contribute the energy back to the grid if needed. So that's like an interesting
0: aspect too. Before we wrap up, do you have any last thoughts you'd like to share?
1: Yeah, so there's a city in Louisiana called Shreveport, so just to back up a little, I know we've talked about how like, you know, telcos and ISPs, they have all the power when it comes to like determining which areas get coverage first, right? Just cause like they're optimized to provide coverage to densely populated areas. So, you know, in Shreveport, you have like one in four individuals that live below the poverty line in about like 40% of the cities without Wi-Fi coverage. And so, you know, the city was thinking, okay, like how do we address this digital divide here? And what they ended up doing is like they used the pollen mobile network to create this like public Wi-Fi network that provided like affordable high-speed internet access to low income neighborhoods. And they, they were working with like the local libraries to do so where like, you know, individuals go to their library, pick up like a radio or a hotspot and like install it in their house. But essentially like the amazing thing about like D Y is that like, it puts the power into the hands of the individual to like solve their own connectivity issues. Right. And that's kind of like what deep end does in general like it puts power in the hands of like the individuals and you see like the big value proposition too when it comes to like the cost savings because like they were able to do like the city was able to build out this network for around like five hundred thousand dollars where they said like if they had decided to go with like a traditional isB not only would it have taken like a lot longer but it would have cost like roughly five million dollars so we're talking like a 90 percent cost savings right so I'm just super excited i think there's a lot of value propositions that will like you know attract people to these networks over time whether it's like the trustless and permissionless aspect whether it's like the cost savings aspect of these networks or it's even just like the sustainability of these networks like when you think about like the server networks what they're doing is like they're like storage networks compute networks like they're leveraging excess resources right so like for example, if you have excess like storage space, like you could contribute it to the network, right? And so you're you're additionally bringing like storage capacity online without like, you know, using more energy or without like buying another hard drive. It's really interesting when you think about like the sustainability portion too, is like, as we move into the future where like, you know, AI is ramping up, IOT is ramping up, the demand for compute is going exponential. You start thinking about like, okay, how do we unlock like the resources that can sustain the demand and you think about, okay, there's so much like your iPhone has like a crazy amount of like compute on it. Right. So like, what if you could contribute that to like a decentralized network and you actually have like some protocols who are doing that. Like the render protocol is leveraging like iPads with like the M1 chip in it to be like a node on the network. And that's just fascinating. Cause you're almost like that that's like compute power that would have never been able to like be tapped into. And you're bringing that onto the network now.
0: Yeah, you know, it, it. it's kind of funny, because I think if you go back far enough, we just we all land at BitTorrent for this stuff, which was really the first decentralized infrastructure protocol. We don't think of it that way, right? We think of BitTorrent as Oh, is this way you could pirate movies. But at the end of the day, like, The work being done at at BitTorrent back in like the early 2000s really laid the foundation for a lot of these distributed data systems, which seems like it's kind of the natural conclusion now that this is all uh, wrapped up in a token on Web3. So it's very cool to see that evolution of the tech. Yeah,
1: it's crazy what some economic incentives can do to to
0: technology. (laughs) It really is. Well, Sammy, thanks so much for joining us today on Validated to talk about this stuff.
1: Yeah, I had a great time talking with you, Austin. Thanks for having me.
0: Validated is produced by Ray Belli with help from Ross Cohen, Brandon Ector, Amira Valiani, and Ainsley Medford. Engineering by Tyler Morissette.